Welcome to National Parks Traveler, where we explore the national parks and the issues that involve them. The Everglades, the River of Grass, those words convey powerful imagery of a sweeping subtropical landscape, one with rare and beautiful plants, flights of colorful birds that can cloud the sky, and curious and fearsome wildlife, from crocodiles and alligators to panthers, and more recently, massive constricting snakes. Within the 1.5 million acres of Everglades National Park is the country's largest officially designated wilderness area east of the Rocky Mountains, the 1.3 million acre Marjorie Stoneman Douglas Wilderness. But this landscape has been under siege almost since the first whites reached South Florida and brought with them plans to divert or dam the water that flows south from Lake Okeechobee to Florida Bay. All those efforts, down through the decades, altered the Everglades by changing its natural processes. This is Kurt Rappencheck, your host at National Parks Traveler. Today, it's been more than two decades since Congress passed the Comprehensive Everglades Restoration Plan, which has been viewed as a groundbreaking law aimed at restoring America's Everglades after decades of destruction. That project was seen as a way to restore, preserve, and protect the South Florida ecosystem while providing for other water-related needs of the region, including water supply and flood control. In 2009, then-Interior Secretary Ken Salazar called the restoration project a national priority. It's one with a hefty price tag, one that committed the federal government to providing nearly $11 billion towards the restoration goals, with the state of Florida providing nearly $12 billion more. Where do things stand? To help answer that question, we're joined by Eric Eichenberg, president of the Everglades Foundation. Welcome to The Traveler, Eric. Thank you for having me. Great to be here. Well, to help those listeners who might not have seen the Everglades in person, could, could you first describe this incredible place, its ecosystem, and the wildlife that make it home? Well, um, first, let me just say that you uh, your opening uh, certainly painted the uh, the picture. You did a great job in your own right, certainly providing some of the history as well. I, I Each time that I go out there, the landscape, the environment of the Everglades, it's uh, it's ever-changing. It is a It is a majestic uh, wilderness, as you point out, it's a majestic, slow-moving river south of Lake Okeechobee, south of uh, agricultural operations. But the central Everglades, the river of grass that Marjorie Stoneman Douglas eloquently talked about, it is a free-flowing, moving system that water flows. Uh, we can talk more about uh, how the restoration is making sure water gets to the right places. But um, the bird life, the wading birds, the roseate spoonbills, I saw a bunch of them out there uh, earlier this week. It is, it is fascinating. And what's remarkable about it is you can go in certain portions of the Everglades. And we like to talk about the greater Everglades. And you can even go into the Kissimmee River Basin north of Lake Okeechobee, the uplands, the rocklands, the pinelands, uh, the, the, the diverse habitats that are throughout South Florida. It is America's Everglades, and it's a treasure that must be protected. Now, last fall, we saw a contract awarded to complete the second and final phase of the Tamiani Trail Next Steps project. That phase is focused on raising and reconstructing the remaining 6.7 miles of the eastern Tamiani Trail with features to further improve water conveyance, roadway safety, and stormwater treatment. 
Phase one of the Next Steps project improved water flow through the Tamiami Trail with the construction of a one-mile bridge back in 2013 and 2.3 miles of bridging completed in 2019. Most recently, we saw a celebration of the removal of nearly six miles of roadbed from the old Tamiami Trail to allow more water to flow south into Everglades National Park for the first time in a century. How big of a goal was accomplishing that roadbed removal? Oh, it, it was it was tremendous. Uh, this this roadbed, this road was uh, first thought of in 1918, uh, and it began to be uh, put in place, constructed in the mid 1920s. And that road, Tamiami, Tampa to Miami, it was the connection for commercial uh, travel in the state, getting goods and services across Florida. If folks are familiar, certainly with the Florida Peninsula, that U.S. 41. Um, is there in the southern part of the peninsula. And by removing that strip of asphalt, uh, that asphalt, that roadbed that cut off the natural flow of water from the central Everglades into Everglades National Park, to have now three and a half miles of bridges, um, there's going to be the construction of putting in massive culverts where the road um, still needs to be raised. We are seeing significant fresh water flowing into Everglades National Park. That's the whole point. It's pulling the plug in the tub, we like to say. Um, and you have to get water flowing down to Florida Bay and the Florida Keys. That is, those are bridges to, they're not bridges to nowhere. These are bridges that are allowing water to move. It was a critical development. And we were delighted that this week, that old roadbed um, has been removed and took over a hundred years to get there. Yeah. And now again, for, for those listeners who haven't been to um, Everglades National Park or, or Big Cypress National Preserve next door, or, or even who might have seen, a, you know, a National Geographic um, program on the Everglades, it might be hard to understand what the big deal is, because there are times, I mean, the the river of grass, the river, the water flow from Okeechobee South is so slow. And so it might be hard to comprehend how important it is to the ecosystem and the wildlife. Yes, um, and, and I, I'll, I'll point out, too, that uh, the headwaters of the Everglades starts at Shingle Creek, which is uh, just south of the Orlando International Airport. And uh, Shingle Creek begins that flow of water through the Kissimmee Chain of Lakes. And I, I, I want to point out that last week, um, the Army Corps of Engineers finished the restoration of the Kissimmee River. Back in the 1960s, they dug a channel. Uh, a canal that drained that entire floodplain. Uh, and it was a direct chute of water that would fall in north of uh, Lake Okeechobee. That water would go directly into the lake itself. The same agency, the Army Corps of Engineers, that dug that channel, filled it in the original river, the meandering Kissimmee, the oxbows are back in tremendous fashion. The wading bird population returns. That's a testament that as we continue with this effort to restore the Everglades, the Kissimmee River is a great example that this effort pays off. So by getting water into uh, uh, Lake Okeechobee, naturally it would flow over the southern rim of the lake into the river of grass, and then again down to the Florida Keys. But this is the water supply, Kurt, this is the water supply for now 9 million South Floridians. And with a growing population, uh, now the third largest state in the union, Florida, um, folks are, li they live on the coast. They live on the East Coast, the West Coast, you have this great uh, expanse there in the middle of the state, the park, the big cypress. Um, but we need to ensure that water flows south. It recharges the aquifer. And again, that's the drinking water supply now for um, almost a third of our population. 
Yeah. Now I'm I'm guessing um, the foundation does a lot of research, funds a lot of science in in the Everglades. Um, are the crews out there now watching to see how this improved water flow is impacting the landscape? Yes, and as as pieces to this puzzle come online, and we have more coming soon. Uh, it's been you you pointed out that Congress passed the Comprehensive Everglades Plan back in 2000. We're now finally seeing projects coming towards that finish line. And as they come online and those benefits are evident, you're able to see not just water flowing and re-engineering the way water flows, but you're also seeing the benefits to the habitat, the benefits to the species, the increased opportunities for people to recreate within the ecosystem itself. And, and that's, that's, from our perspective, shows that restoration is working. It has a benefit uh, that must be continued. And as far as our scientists, we have uh, eight distinguished PhDs who are experts in the field of um, Everglades science. Um, they're working with academics across Florida, across the country, to make sure that the decisions that are made, that are being made, are having a benefit to the ecosystem. The good news, it's happening. More to come. Yeah, uh, cause and effect, and, and maybe this is a question that it's too soon to say, but I understand that uh, this past um, spring that there was an incredible nesting season this past spring among the wading birds that, that utilize the Everglades. Any idea if that was related to the, the, the improvements in the water flow, or was it just because it was a, a wetter winter? No, I, you know, as, as water is now timed better, uh, throughout the annual, throughout the 12 months here in Florida. And as you as you know, we have two different seasons. Um, normally, you talk about four seasons. In Florida, it's the rainy season and the dry season. Um, but as water is, being, is flowing uh, during more of those dry months, uh, you can time the delivery better. And, and the wading bird populations, the nestings that, you've, uh, that you referenced, snail kites, our endangered snail kites that are, uh, that are uh, vibrant here in the Everglades, that, that population is rebounding. So again, as we, as decisions are made and as projects are finishing, it's important that water managers deliver the necessary water at the right time of the year. Um, and we're flourishing uh, in, in regards to, uh, as you point out, uh, bird life. So in a very, very much an indicator um, that restoration is improving. You know, it's interesting. Um, you're in Florida and you're talking about all this water that you have. And I'm out here in the Rocky Mountains where um, we're in the, the clutch of a 20-year-long drought. Um, and it's, it, it's kind of um, odd to be talking about all the water you have. But as you mentioned, Florida is the, the third largest state in terms of population. Is there enough water to balance for the ecosystem as well as for the human needs? There is. Uh, we 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 receive on average about sixty six inches of rain rainfall per year, and unfortunately, as you and I uh, visit here this uh, this day, we waste billions of gallons of that fresh water. And I I have I was just out west myself. I have read the reports that are um, that have been forthcoming on the historic drought that you that are that you're in, and then to have a state like ours um, that's because the way we manage water today, we're wasting too much. So Everglades restoration re-engineers the way water flows out of Lake Okeechobee. Lake Okeechobee is our Lake Mead. It's, it's critically important to the state. They're right in the middle of the peninsula. And unfortunately, when the lake rises, the only option today is the Army Corps sends the water east and west, and it's polluted. It's, and that's a whole other topic of why. But the water is polluted, high in nutrients, phosphorus, nitrogen. And uh, that those nutrients being 
blasted east and west. It causes ecological harm when there's blue-green algae. It's, uh, envir- it's uh, environmental harm for sure. It's a threat to human health. But when you have the comprehensive plan fully in place, you're able to store, clean, and send that water south under the bridges of Tamiami Trail that you led with, and then ultimately down to the Florida Keys. So the benefit here is we see crises, we see the wasting of water, but the restoration of, of, of the Everglades ensures that we're re-engineering the flow of water, and that direction is to the south. Yeah. Now, uh, restoration work has been underway for most of this century, and, and granted, we're only in 2021, but still, two decades is a long time in, in some some aspects of life. Where do things stand in terms of achieving success with the restoration project? We are most optimistic that this is the decade for the Everglades. Uh, when President Clinton signed the comprehensive plan in December of 2000, it spelled out a 30-year effort, a 30-year journey to restore the Everglades. So here we now are entering, we're in our third decade, and the finish line from the original signing of that bill was the year 2030. So as uh, the state of Florida, um, the governor of Florida has committed a substantial amount of funding to the Everglades. He pledged $2.5 billion uh, during the uh, four years that we're in. We're now seeing increased money coming out of the U.S. Congress the current administration, the Biden administration, is recommending $350 million for Everglades restoration. But, Kurt, the, um, the most pressing opportunity is as Congress debates infrastructure, as Congress determines some climate policies, when you hydrate wetlands, and this is a large wetlands here in the Everglades, when you, re- when you put water into a wetland, it sequesters carbon. Um, there's benefits. Uh, wetlands provide a tremendous benefit to ensuring that we can combat and work towards combating climate change. It it acts as a buffer to rising sea levels as the aquifer pushes water to the east, the Biscayne Aquifer. So we have a number of opportunities here to check the box on climate. And we wanna make sure that Congress is aware that the Army Corps of Engineers between now and the year 2030 needs $5 billion to finish all of the projects that Congress has already authorized. So we're positioning during um, these talks in Washington to put this type of dollar amount towards the Everglades. And then let's finish these projects. Let's finish the restoration. Let's do it on time. Is it on time? Do you, do you think that uh, there, there's nine, eight and a half years left? Well, from the amount of projects that are going to make the largest difference to the, what were uh, the challenges that we face here. Yes. Uh, just last year, they began working on a massive reservoir south of Lake Okeechobee that's going to deliver some 360,000 acre feet of water, the 120, 130 billion gallons that are going to be stored, cleaned, and sent south. So that's going to be a big time game changer in all of this. And that's a $1.7 billion project in itself. And that's just one piece to this comprehensive plan and these various projects. So this is nature-based infrastructure. These are uh, shovel-worthy jobs, shovel-worthy projects, um, jobs that are long-standing here, and uh, we're just trying to take advantage of um, the political landscape and the dollars that are looking to go towards climate. Everglades restoration is here to um, to be finished. Yeah, yeah, and it's always a tricky landscape. Although it it does seem like there is a bipartisan support for uh, restoration of the Everglades. And, and to your point, this has been a bipartisan uh, effort over the decades. It is a unifying one uh, in a time when we need issues to bring us together. 
Uh, this is because, again, I go back to the water supply. Uh, we have a prior to COVID, we were seeing 140 million tourists, 125 to 140 million tourists a year coming to Florida. They 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 tap into our water supply, let alone our residents. So this is um, this is it's all about water. It's about water. It's about preserving the water supply for South Florida, let alone the benefits to the ecosystem, the habitat, the species. But that's why we're optimistic. We see the political will necessary. Uh, to finish this. And the Everglades Foundation is going to remain dogged to ensure that we get it done. Yeah. We're talking today with Eric Eichenberg, the president of the Everglades Foundation, about restoration of the Everglades, the river of grass in Florida. We're going to take a short break. We'll be right back. Nova Scotia, 8,000 miles of coastline dotted with colorful fishing villages, quaint coastal towns, and an abundance of scenic natural beauty. Home to two national parks, Cape Breton Highlands and Kejimakujik. Spend your nights under a canopy of twinkling stars. Spend your days exploring trails, beaches, historical waterways, and tons of cultural and recreational experiences. Visit NovaScotia.com today to start planning your natural getaway. Do you love one-click shopping? With our partner, Interior Federal Credit Union, you can earn rewards just by making online purchases. You're missing out on rewards points if you're not using their Visa credit and or debit card. By adding these cards to your online shopping cart with Amazon, Walmart, or other shopping retailers, you can earn a point for every dollar you spend. Binge watching a lot with streaming services like Netflix and Hulu? Use their card for recurring payments to earn points as well. Visit their website, interiorfcu.org, and read their blog for more details and how to apply. Whether it be strategy, business planning, change management, board development, executive search, or diversity planning, Potrero Group is here to help. They mix a depth of experience in the parks and land space with a breadth of best practices from other industries. For more information or to schedule a preliminary conversation, go to potrerogroup.com. P-O-T-R-E-R-O group.com. Western National Parks Association is a nonprofit education partner of the National Park Service. WNPA supports parks across the West, developing products, services, and programs that enhance the visitor experience, understanding, and appreciation of national parks. Learn more at WNPA.org. The Grand Teton National Park Foundation is a private, nonprofit organization that supports projects that protect and enhance Grand Teton National Park's cultural, historic, and natural resources. By funding initiatives that go beyond what the National Park Service could accomplish on its own, foundation donors improve the visitor experience and provide benefits to the National Park System for decades to come. You can see their successes at gtnpf.org. We're back with Eric Eichenberg talking about the uh, Everglades Restoration Project in Florida. You know, you mentioned about um, the great work that the um, the restoration projects so far have done in terms of increasing the flow of water through uh, through the River of Grass down to Florida Bay. One of the topics that the traveler has covered um, for some years now is the uh, oil exploration going on in Big Cypress National Preserve, just adjacent and north of Everglades National Park. And there are some concerns that, you know, if that went forward with some of the um, the exploration that they're talking about, without proper reclamation of the uh, the damage that is done, 
that could really impact roughly 40% of the water that flows down into the Everglades. Is that, is that true? Is that a big concern? Yes, it is, a, it is a concern. It's a concern that's grown here in the short term. You have a company that owns mineral rights within the Big Cypress. They've been uh, excavating for oil for about um, 60 or so years. Um, you have a company that's doing it, uh, that has a lease to do it for on about 11,000 acres, if I recall. But there have been some, um, there's been some talk. Uh, there's certainly the issue has been brought up in the Florida legislature to determine what the future looks there. I think you will, you might see some interesting news coming um, as this topic continues to uh, be elevated, but we want to make sure that the Big Cypress is preserved. And, you know, you, we've invested a tremendous amount of money in what's called the Pickian Strand. This is in eastern Collier County, east, or east of Naples. It was an old development project that we would build homes on the on the western side of the Big Cypress. Uh, that was thwarted. Um, they then, Army Corps of Engineers, state of Florida, came in to work towards restoration. We're seeing now a tremendous amount of water flowing into Picayune, getting down to the 10,000 islands. So you have mineral rights that are there now. You have an operation that's occurring. We want to limit it to that at the moment, but we'll see what uh, comes here in the future. But it's a topic that, again, is gaining um, is gaining attention. Yeah, there's certainly a lot going on behind the scenes. I know, uh, I guess the Park Service is evaluating the, the request for a drilling permit, and uh, I think the state of Florida is as well. So we'll, we'll see what comes of that uh, possibly later this summer, if not this fall. Now, there were concerns voiced by the National Academies of Sciences back in 2018 that there needed to be a reassessment of the restoration of the Everglades restoration project's goals and approaches to ensure that it would succeed in light of climate change, sea level rise, hotter temperatures, and, and possible changes in rainfall. Has that reassessment been done? Do you know? That reassessment, um, specifically on what the Academy was offering, uh, I, I can't speak that they've started their own work on that, but I know our team has been very much aware of, of their recommendations or their encouragement. And the South Florida Water Management District, the Army Corps of Engineers working uh, together. I will say that um, when, when I hear the question or the point that the Academy raised, the projects that have been in place um, since 2006, roughly, they were all curt on the peripheral. They were on the coast of Florida. And yes, these are projects that are part of this comprehensive plan. These are projects that need to be constructed and come online. But again, they're not getting to the heart of the matter. And from our perspective, the heart of the matter on all of this is Lake Okeechobee and getting the lake water down to the Florida Keys. So when you have the Army Corps working with the state to pass and, and get going on what's called the Central Everglades Plan, uh, this is a plan that is going to decompartmentalize the Central Everglades, the River of Grass. And instead of, instead of having compartments where there's more water in one compartment or not enough in another, you're removing levees, you're filling in canals, you're getting more sheet flow, having natural sheet flow working its way south. Then with this reservoir, Congress in 2018 and the Water Resources Development Act authorized the construction of a above ground reservoir south of Lake Okeechobee, directly in the middle of about a half a million acres of sugarcane production. Uh, there's going to be expansive uh, stormwater treatment areas. I like to call them the kidneys of the Everglades. That's going to be able to treat the water. And then as you move that water south, again, you have the ability to uptake the, the, the carbon 
uptake there. This is a carbon bank, I would submit to you, um, here in the Everglades. And then with resiliency issues and, and rising sea levels and some of the climate concerns that have been raised by the Academy and others, these restoration goals, when they become a reality, are going to play a key part in, uh, in, in helping to solve the issues and the concerns that we face. Yeah. Now, we hear in the news that the ice caps on the poles are melting quickly, that hurricanes are becoming more potent, that most recently the Gulf Stream that runs past Florida might be breaking up or changing. Do these events risk impacting the restoration goals of seeing more water flow through the Everglades to Florida Bay, in part through sea level rise? I mean, I believe you'd mentioned earlier that the Biscayne Aquifer is, is actually pushing out towards the sea. I'm not a scientist. I'm I'm kind of curious how all this works. Well, I, it, you know, it's it's an area where we have seen on sea level rise and saltwater intrusion. There have been municipalities, cities in Broward County, just up the road from where I sit today, that hit the water supply for um, Hallandale Beach, for example. And the residents of Hallandale, uh, they had to move their water tower, their water supply west of I-95 because, again, once that saltwater infiltrated the freshwater source there, it was over. So we're seeing uh, a lot more concern about um, saltwater intrusion, sea level rise, but by by keeping what by when you dry out the Everglades half a year and you have fires and you have concerns there, it's it's a it's a stress on the aquifer itself. So again, this all comes down to re-engineering the way water flows on the Florida Peninsula. And by getting that water staying south and on in the Everglades, that porous limestone, that fresh water permeates down into the limestone, it hits the aquifer, and then that, that gravity pull is to the east. And the Biscayne Aquifer, there, uh, I hear stories decades ago, uh, maybe even a century ago, the, the aquifer would be bubbling up here in Biscayne Bay and my office, as I look out my windows, is looking at Biscayne uh, National Park. And that was the source. This is the source of the fresh water for uh, South Florida all the way up to Southern Palm Beach County. So, again, as we as we work to store more water on the peninsula, it's helping with that. You mentioned hurricanes. We've had hurricanes come through the spine of the peninsula and work its way up. And the Everglades, the Kissimmee River area that I mentioned earlier, they, they help to absorb a lot of that rainfall. And these floodplains, these wetlands, the mangroves that are uh, along the coast of Florida help to uh, help the ecosystem take on uh, all that rain or take on that wind. So we, we do see when we can ensure the preservation of this ecosystem, it helps us um, when we have hurricanes, as we're fighting climate change. We just can't let up on this project now that's in year 21. We want to finish it in the next few years for sure. Yeah. Is that water flow down through the Everglades, um, down into Florida Bay, strong enough to, to uh, counteract sea level rise? I mean, I, I've heard that some of the mangroves are, are dying because there's so much salt water. Well, they, we, have had, um, we have had severe negative impact on mangroves along the coast. One of the projects in this comprehensive plan is called the Biscayne Bay Coastal Wetlands effort and you're taking water, fresh water that's in our canal system, and instead of shunting it through canals and out to the um, Atlantic Ocean is to spread it along the mangroves, along the coasts. And again, the Biscayne Bay Coastal Wetlands is having a tremendous benefit to um, 
rejuvenating our mangroves along the coast, and they act as um, as a uh, as a barrier, as a as a resource when we certainly have tropical events and hurricanes. As you point out, as as we have hurricanes and you have water flow. It may not be what people think as a river going through the Everglades, but as water just stays there and it does move very every so slightly, but just staying there and permeating down into the limestone, it then helps with that aquifer that does push east and it's a buffer. It's not the it's not the answer or the solution to rising sea level because we got a lot of coastal resiliency that we need to deal with, but it does act as a buffer. It's it's important that we have that head pushing towards the east. You can't fight climate change on the coast of Florida without finishing Everglades restoration. And that's certainly the message we've been delivering. Right, right. Now, of course, it's the Everglades Foundation. It's not the Everglades uh, Hydrological Restoration Plan organization. If and when hydrological restoration is accomplished in, you know, eight and a half years, hopefully, what about the invasion of the park and the, the rest of the Everglades by invasive species, such as the, the Burmese python and other reptilian species, the, the non-native vegetation, such as Brazilian pepper and melaleuca, lionfish in the, in the park's marine waters, and even colorful birds normally found in pet store trade, um, the monk parakeets? Yeah, you've, uh, you've brought an issue forward that is... Um is of utmost importance, just as important as the hydrological balance of water uh, through the through the Everglades itself. So, uh, having agencies like the Florida Fish and Wildlife Commission, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, Everglades National Park, and its um, and its researchers, uh, really raising awareness on invasives. You mentioned pythons; they appear to get most of the attention. Folks don't really understand how many are out there. Um, it's it's a tremendous amount. Um, we, we're seeing an impact on fur-bearing animals within the Everglades. I used to see a lot of rabbits when you're driving along Tamimi Trail from Miami to Ta- Naples. I haven't seen a small uh, Everglades rabbit in years. So as as we as we see the threat, it's ensuring that residents that have these exotic species, snakes, other animals, uh, when they're tired of them they not go out there and drop them off. I mean, there was concern that that was a, that was a, uh, an issue um, years ago with Hurricane Andrew. There's stories that people lost their homes and they went out there and dropped the snakes off just because they couldn't deal with them any longer. All that to say, this is a major problem. We had, um, oh, uh, you, you, we talked about Malaluka. Um, I remember when I worked for um, Congressman Clay Shaw, we were out with Bruce Babbitt uh, releasing beetles to go out and fight Malaluka. So we're tr- all the type of science, the research, all of that is still very, very much necessary. But this needs to be done on parallel tracks. You have to fight the invasives. You've got to go after the invasives with as much gusto as you're going after the dollars in Washington or in Tallahassee to finish these projects. So it's on parallel tracks. You can't have a restored, hydrologically balanced Everglades without aggressively fighting the invasives. Uh, we have a lot of work to do on that front, but thankfully the public is uh, a little more aware of the concerns that we're seeing uh, on the topic that you've raised. Are you seeing as much support um, for it um, from the, the state and the federal governments in terms of, you know, are, are they supporting the efforts to attack the invasives as, as much as they're working on the restoration of the river of grass? Yes, I think it's, it's building, it's building, it's, it's, um, it's going to take a little more time, but there's very much attention. I, I do want to point out again, the Florida Fish and Wildlife Commission 
Um, they host um, on the pythons. They host an annual hunt where folks go are encouraged to go out. They get trained. They go out. They um, they they bag these pythons. But it's not even putting a dent in the overall problem. So, you know, you have uh, universities in Florida that are tagging these um, these snakes with GPS devices to track and follow their movements. And um, so, you know, bringing all of these resources together, we hope for cold snaps because these snakes, a lot of them, a lot of them uh, are affected by cold snaps that occur in the Everglades. So, we, we again, I, I, I don't want to diminish the fact that we have a challenge. We're putting resources behind it, the agencies that is that are that are doing it. But um, we need the public to also come alongside and, and ensure that they're not adding to the problem. But we, we've got to tackle the invasive issue across across the Everglades. No doubt about it. Yeah. Everglades National Park is, is on the UNESCO list of World Heritage Sites. Um, many national parks in America are um, Yellowstone, Grand Canyon. Everglades is the only site, I believe, in North America that is listed as a World Heritage Site in danger because of all these challenges, whether it's the restoration of the river of grass or it's the invasive species or if it's uh, oil exploration on the boundaries of the park. What progress is being made, in your, in your opinion, to, to get that um, designation lifted? Well, I, I, you know, the, the designation that's there, when you hear that being introduced or you hear that being tagged onto Everglades National Park, it just spurs you to, um, to, to push even harder. I think when the, when the time is coming, the time will come when we can see the benefits of all of this work and uh, how that is benefit the beneficiary of this entire effort is Everglades National Park because it is on the southern end of the peninsula and as water is going to flow south they receive it they're the beneficiaries and in 2015 because we're not flowing the proper amount of water south you had too much salt water in Florida Bay the salinity level became so high that you have 50,000 acres of dead seagrass floating on Florida Bay and that that impacted tourism it impacted the fishery and what we what we said following that event is we rang the bell to say this is truly now or never glades. If we don't get this right, not only is the ecosystem endangered, but you have a national park. And, 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 and again, yes, it's in Florida, but we don't we don't say that um, the Grand Canyon is Arizona's. We don't say that uh, the Tetons are only um, in a certain region of the state, this, these are national uh, treasures, and this is America's Everglades. This is this is important just as much as challenges are faced in other national parks. Uh, th- I made an analogy to a member of Congress just the other day. If the torch of Lady Liberty fell off, cracked off, we would all, as Americans, rally around to get that torch back on Lady Liberty. This is the issue here. We have a we have an Everglades that is threatened, that is harmed. That needs in desperate need of uh, repair. The restoration plan needs the dollars from Washington in particular. And uh, that's where we're seeing the progress. So to get to your question on UNESCO and the World Heritage Site, I think by the year 2030, when the plan is complete, if not before, that that endangered label is removed. And we can all celebrate the fact that we have saved this national treasure and we pass it on to the next generation for perpetual protection. Yeah, I hope you're right, Eric. Uh, We've been talking today with Eric Eichenberg, the president of the Everglades Foundation, about the Everglades Restoration Plan and some other issues affecting the national park as well as the surrounding river of grass. Eric, uh, let's stay in touch and and monitor that progress as we move forward towards 2030, and uh, hopefully we'll get to the finish line maybe a little bit ahead of time. 
look forward to it, Kurt. Thank you for having me. That's our show for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. To learn more about the Foundation's work, check out evergladesfoundation.org. For The Traveler, this is Kurt Repencheck. See you in the parks. The Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation is the primary nonprofit fundraising partner for the Blue Ridge Parkway. It is made up of people who have a deep love for this majestic road and want to ensure that its natural beauty and the experiences it offers endure for generations to come. Show your appreciation at brpfoundation.org. Acadia National Park is one of the 10 most popular national parks in the United States. It's also one of the smallest and most vulnerable. That's why Friends of Acadia exists. Friends of Acadia is an independent organization of passionate people, inspiring those who love this magnificent park to make a real and lasting difference for Acadia. You can make a difference at friendsofacadia.org. The North Cascades Institute has a large portfolio. It's an environmental learning center, training center, conference center, and leadership center, all set in the splendor of the North Cascades National Park Complex. Learn more at ncascades.org. Washington State is graced with three spectacular national parks, each different and special in their own unique ways. As the official nonprofit partner and the only philanthropic organization dedicated exclusively to supporting these parks through charitable contributions, Washington's National Park Fund has a mission to raise private support to deepen everyone's love for, understanding of, and experiences in Mount Rainier, North Cascades, and Olympic National Parks. Share your passion for these parks at WNPF.org. The composers and musicians at Orange Tree Productions have created a unique collection known as the National Park Series that has grown to include more than 30 CD titles. Composed against the backdrop of a park's sounds of nature, these musical scores will connect you with these beautiful places and take you there at least in your mind. This collection is the number one selling National Park audio series in the world and provides the background music for National Park's Travelers podcast. Visit them at orangetreeproductions.com. Editing and production work for the National Park's Traveler podcast is done by Splitbeard Productions. You can learn more about us at splitbeardproductions.com. National Parks Traveler is a 501c3 nonprofit media organization that provides daily editorial coverage of national parks and protected areas. Traveler's coverage is made possible by reader and listener donations. Visit us at nationalparkstraveler.org.